0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: Hi, welcome to Lead Fest. This is a medical history podcast that, unlike the History Channel, is actually about history. <laughs> Uh, of the medical variety. I'm Mia Mulder.
0: And I'm Roluca Mudano.
1: And today we're talking about neurodiversity.
0: Yeah, neurodiversity for our time. Mm-hmm. And Especially. specifically,
1: we're, we're taking a specific look at autism. Mm-hmm. Neurodiversity, and we're going to mention this as well, that like, neurodiversity is such a wide umbrella term for a number of, of things. So, And we can't talk about all of them because they're all unique. But we're going to use autism as a, as a sort of case study and examine that both through history and in, in different cultures. But before then, we want to thank someone, don't we? <laughs> yes, we do. We want to thank someone, don't we, out there? Yes, we do. We want to thank you, you're dear sc- patrons. Yes, <laughs>
0: you're scaring me. That's good. Um, yeah, we want to thank Vince Whitaker for being a patron. So this episode is dedicated to you. Thank you for being our patron and for supporting uh, the show. We hope that you enjoy this episode. Mm-hmm. And we, obviously, we want to thank everybody else who's supporting us. Mm-hmm. Your
1: support means that we can host our podcasts in various places and deliver it to you. And also makes it so that we actually, you know, we we, we get to afford snacks <laughs> while we record these videos. Yeah, basically. Which is, you know, that's, that, that's, what, that's what everyone wants, really. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much.
0: As always, before we get into the actual episode, we're going to do just a little... Conversation about what we're, how we're doing, uh, what's new, a little vibe check between the two of us. Mm-hmm. What have you been up to?
1: I have been reading about bone mineralization, <laughs> and I, you know this, and all of my friends know this because I never, I never, shut, never up shut up about it. Shut up about it, yeah. Because it's the first time I've actually have to done like real medical research, or not research in itself, but like I have to do research about medicine. You have to read about it, yeah. I have to read about like actual science, which me as an historian is offensive. <laughs> um, but no it's been good like I've been I've been reading a lot of journals and shit Mm -hmm. um I do I haven't gotten vaccinated and that my full vaccination Mm -hmm. which I guess is a news thing because last time we recorded was a month ago Mm -hmm. and then I had got my vaccination I think two weeks before that so it's been like six weeks since my yeah
0: but I think that's common I think they I mean especially in in Sweden they wait um a bit longer to give you the second dose so you're all good yeah (laughs) Don't worry. I love how you're just like, you're, you're fine. with your
1: authority, you're, you're, fine. Don't you're worry fine. It's fine. But yeah, that's that's me. I'm reading and not getting vaccinated. How
0: mm-hmm. about you? I'm also reading. I'm uh, really getting into Judith Butler, <laughs> which I think is funny that you're reading medical journals and I'm reading like, like philosophy. feminist theory. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's really good. I'm enjoying it. I haven't spent so much time reading philosophy like in my adult life.
1: Mm-hmm. I just want to quickly <clears throat> make the joke. Oh, how the turntables!
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's it's really cool to like discover philosophy that actually um, I don't know that I can relate to, and that also has like practical applications, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of like social justice and things like that. Mm. So that's really cool.
1: Nice philosophy that hugs. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Judith Butler, for for doing that. Also, if you if you're listening to this, read Judith Butler. Just good literature, good feminist literature.
0: Yeah, they're great. Oh, can I brag about something? You
1: can brag about something. What are um, you bragging about?
0: We got a paper published.
1: We oh, got a paper published.
0: Yeah, it's mm-hmm. this um, like policy paper about the intersection between health and environment in a well-being society, or like a society that focuses on human well-being as opposed to like unsustainable economic growth. Mm-hmm. I wrote it with um, a group of other academics and like climate activists, and it got published. And I'm really proud of it. Well, hell yeah! It's yeah. like a
1: real, real academia thing that you've done.
0: Yeah, sort of. I'm just I'm just really proud of it, and uh, I'm really into climate activism, so it's really cool to actually get something done.
1: Yeah, we we love saving the planet in some way that isn't just By posting on Twitter. Paper.
0: Yeah, well, it is a paper, but I'm hoping that it's going to reach the right people. Yeah, you know what I mean. But enough enough of uh, the circle jerk. The circle that jerk that we got. I was going about to say piss on. contest. So let's uh, let's, let's get gr- into. Still,
1: congratulations.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right, let's get into the episode.
1: ( 색�mography) Nice. Thank you.
0: you
1: you So today we're talking about neurodiversity and autism, right? Uh, And we're talking about in, you know, it's a medical history podcast. So... It makes sense to start in history as mm-hmm. far back as we can and work chronologically. And you'd think that would be the easiest way to do it. But we, we when we did research for this, we came to the conclusion that if we do that, we have to start in like prehistory mm-hmm. and talk about like how cavemen I kid you know, cavemen <laughs> is I guess offensive to people before history. Um But, like, how cavemen would treat people who were, like, neurodivergent and things of that nature.
0: Neanderthals, maybe. How Mm -hmm.
1: Neanderthals would treat, like, you know, their neurodiverse people. And we can't do that because we don't know. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it Um, was
0: weirdly difficult to find stuff about neurodiversity before the modern time. mm -hmm. Um, And there's a reason for that. Yeah,
1: yeah. Which we're going to go into. So we figured, instead of going to talk about, like a perspective on neurodiversity that many who are listening to this are probably familiar with Mm -hmm. Um, both because of where we are in space in terms of like we speak English we're in a sort of like a western country but also in a scope of time we live in the modern day and we have a very specific view on neurodiversity that isn't the same throughout time or space so we're going to start with what we're familiar with and then we're going to see what we can see what other perspectives there are out there maybe. So with that in mind, I'm going to do a little quick rundown on sort of the history of autism, from where like the origin of the term and origin of the the medical view on autism. So when it comes to medical history, especially recent medical history, when we're talking about neurodiverse people, it's always been in the sort of framing of like, how do we cure? These people. How do we make people who are different from the typical to fit to the norm? And that is interesting from a historical point of view, because if you want to fit a group of people to the norm, you first have to define what the norm is in the first place. Like how do you define what the typical brain is? How do you define what a typical body is, for example? In modern psychiatry, the rule of thumb is roughly, for like a, a typical brain or person, is can you live a normal life in society without help? Which is very broad and very, um, it misses a lot of aspects of living, but sort of works for the purposes of healthcare, unfortunately. Like if they don't need to help you, then you're not their problem anymore.
0: Yeah, but I I just kind of wanted to also say that I feel like that's such a problematic definition Mm -hmm. to begin with, because we all need help in some way or another. It, I, I just feel like framing it as like, if you need help, then you are not like a functional member of society. I feel like that's really messed up.
1: Yeah, it's, it, it's incredibly messed up. And I'm gonna, and I'm actually gonna return to this a bit later that mm-hmm. because of that, a lot of the sort of like, modern day diagnostic criteria, or the modern way we, we look at people who are like, not neurotypical, it varies greatly and not necessarily because of things that have to do with the brain or body but things that have specifically have to do with society and i have have a couple of examples but i'm going to talk about that later so it's a great point and i love Mm -hmm. that you brought it up but this model of like looking at brain health generally that also applies to people who, who have like depression and anxiety as well like that like can you live a normal life without help and if, if you're, like, super depressed, but you can sort of live a normal life, then the medical system is just going to be like, well, then you're fine. You're not depressed. Stamp of approval. I, and I just wanted to mention that because, like, that, you know, that matters significantly. I'm just thinking about, like, my own life when I've been super depressed and yeah. anxious. Most of that was when, like, a, a time in my life when I was, like, poor. And yeah. I, I had to worry about rent. And then the doctors are like, well, you have anxiety, you have depression, you have all of these things, right? But now, I don't, I don't need help anymore. So now, and even though I have, like... I still have depression, you know, obviously. Uh, but because I don't need help anymore, the medical community is just like, well, no, you're fine now. Mm-hmm. So it's such it's an arbitrary measurement of, yeah. of typicality. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to come back to that. However, this view that we have right now is weirdly enough the most inclusive one we've had basically since the birth of modern science. So you know we're going to get into a good episode on this one. Um, because historically, it has varied significantly, so to say. In early history... And you're going to talk about some examples, specific examples, but I'm just going to talk very broadly. Either most people who lived weren't really categorized into this sort of like binary of neurotypical versus neurodiverse. They were also living in a sort of similar test of like, can you live a normal life without help or not? Because like if you're a feudal peasant, as long as you can do your farming, no one's going to really care about like how your brain looks. But conversely, if you can't do that, if you can't live in a society without like a specific support system for example, unfortunately a lot of, in a lot of times of history you were shunned or you were cast out or you were labeled uh, you know an idiot um, which is you know pretty pretty um, unethical and pretty horrific. But during the 19th century uh, during the establishment of what would we would call modern science, people started to, sort of, they wanted to find the causes of, of, of why people sometimes didn't fit in to society. And when I talk about modern science, I, I'm talking in terms of like universities and the, the, the prevalence of the scientific methods and so on. Because there began a desire among scientists, firstly to exist, more scientists begin existing during this time, but also to explain and affect basically everything, as in why are people the way they are. And there's nothing wrong with that specifically. Like, that's just good old-fashioned scientific curiosity. But this didn't really happen in a vacuum, and there are consequences for this this curiosity. In previous episodes of this podcast, we've talked about, like, the eugenics movement, uh, which was a social and scientific movement of the 19th and 20th century. And they also loved to label people and Mm -hmm. find out...
0: Find a standard. Find
1: the differences among people. Yeah. yeah. Um, and to pathologize anyone who didn't fit the ideal.
0: Um, we all know how that turned we out. We all know how
1: that turned out. Most people think about this in regards to like race and race mixing, but they also dealt with people who were neurodiverse, like people who didn't fit the norm, uh, the neurotypical norm. And so while they did create a sort of racial ideal, they also created a mental ideal archetype. The new Latin word, autissimus, was coined by the Swiss psychiatrist Eugen Bueller in 1910, as he was trying to define symptoms of schizophrenia, he derived it from the Greek word auktos and used it to mean morbid self-admiration, referring to autistic withdrawal of the patient to his fantasies, against which any influence from outside becomes an intolerable disturbance.
0: That's interesting. That is interesting. Uh, Self-absorption.
1: So basic, what an,
0: what an interesting way to look at it. I've never heard mm-hmm. of that perspective before.
1: <laughs> right? But this and this is where this is where it begins. And it's sort of like if a child is not
0: like interested in their surroundings
1: yeah, or or with other people specifically, mm-hmm. they are seen as like self-admired or yeah, self-absorbed. Yeah yeah. 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 Um and this is and this is seen not as a condition in and of itself, but as a as a sort of prelude to to childhood schizophrenia. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is kind of important A Soviet uh, child psychiatrist Grunia Shukoreva
0: Oh, wait, wait, wait I can, I can read that I can read that Okay uh, Grunia suhaeva
1: Thank you <laughs> um, She described a similar syndrome That was published in Russian mm-hmm. in 1925 And in German in 1926 And this is where we see the earliest mentions Of like the term autism During this time, most treatments of people who would would today be classified as autistic were very dependent on how well they'd integrate with society, as we mentioned. So, say someone is autistic, but they can do their farm work or factory work well enough to support themselves. In this case, clinicians would basically consider them to be normal, to be neurotypical. Some clinicians would occasionally describe patients as nervous, (laughs) um, which wasn't great from their point of view, uh, but not anything serious. So there are many doctors, clinicians who would uh, examine uh, children who would uh, who would display uh, like signs of autism, for example, and uh, wouldn't integrate well with their peers. Um, and they would uh, doctors would talk to their parents and note that like oh, the mother seems nervous, but not anything like of concern. Um, but they would be concerned about the child, like because because of the the social integration aspect. And if they couldn't integrate at all in many areas. In the words of that era, they would be labelled as idiots and often left to their own devices, sometimes put in asylums to be kept away from the rest of society. Mm. And that wasn't new either. It's just that they they've uh, they've started like defining the terms more mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm. having a scientific reason for doing this. But mm. even as far back as I think Plato, I think Plato said something along the lines of like those who cannot like be, be sociable or be part of their society properly should be taken away and kept away from the others as is right, or whatever. This way of thinking like, wasn't really new, like they hadn't started doing this, they've always done this. But the word autism first took its modern sense in 1938 when Hans Asperger uh, of the Vienna University Hospital adopted Bueller's terminology of autistic psychopaths in a lecture in German about child psychology. Asperger was investigating an autism syndrome, now known as Asperger's syndrome, though for various reasons it wasn't rightly recognized as a separate diagnosis until 1981, partially because he did it in German and people didn't really translate German medical literature that much. But one uh, of his sort of one of the people who were influenced by this, by this lecture was a man called Leo Kanner. Leo Kanner of the Johns Hopkins Hospital first used autism in its most modern sense uh, in English when he introduced the label early infantile autism in a 1943 report of 11 children with striking behavioral similarities. Almost all of the characteristics described in Kanner's first paper on the subject, notably autistic aloneness and insistence on sameness, are still regarded as typical of the autistic spectrum of disorders. I don't love the word disorder to be mm. used here, but that mm. is the medical term used, so mm. I can't really avoid it. So, and Leo Kanner is sort of like credited with popularizing this term widely and it's seen as almost like the father of, of autism in the modern sense, even though he wasn't the first to use it in medicine. One of the causes speculated of autism during this time was a childhood isolation and sort of like lack of affection from the mother there's um there's an idea that like if, if, a, if a mother is sort of cold and distant to their child they will they will instead focus inwardly now we know that's not really the case but um, that's something that sort of Kanner talked about early in his work and Canner's reuse of autism in this sort of like new more modern way led to decades of confused terminology like Infantile schizophrenia, because people would still go back to the the original definition, where it's like, it may be a sign of schizophrenia, even though it really wasn't. And child psychiatry's focus on maternal deprivation led to a lot of misconceptions of autism as uh, like a normal infant response to refrigerator mothers, Mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, I think a pretty self-explanatory term, where a mother just provides food and no affection, and is cold... (laughs) And starting in the late 1960s autism was being established as a separate syndrome from childhood schizophrenia and from there it goes pretty quickly like uh now we sort of have the modern view of what autism is it took until the 1980s for the dsm-3 and the dsm is a is a sort of like manual for how to diagnose uh, mental medical conditions. And the 3 is the third edition. We're currently on the DSM-5. In, in the DSM-3, they differentiated autism from child schizophrenia in the 1980s. And in 1987, the DSM-3-R, now we're getting into fun terminology, they provided a checklist for how to diagnose autism. I can't for the believe, first time in 87. I
0: can't believe how late it was until they properly established a set of... Um, I mean, again, you know, you go with, like, medicalizing this issue, but, like, providing a set of, like, symptoms to look out for and, like, differentiating between schizophrenia and autism. Mm-hmm. Like, that's really late. That's
1: really late. And yeah. especially since, like, you know, they, they've started... Doctors are starting to sort of differentiate it in the 60s. Yeah, It's yeah. not included in in the sort of, like framework until mm. the 80s and then it takes another seven years before they actually provide like a, a checklist for how to right how i mean i think it.
0: maybe it was bad timing because i know the dsm i think a new edition comes out every 10 years or something i yeah, mean, it might be wrong you know they, so maybe yeah. it was kind of like bad timing too um, like they needed to wait until the next edition to actually update it mm-hmm. but it still feels like just a very just very late
1: yeah I have issues with the DSM generally I like also at- have issues <laughs> with the DSM <laughs> we should make an episode about the DSM we should day. make an episode about the um, DSM for sure I studied I studied a year of psychi- of psychology mm-hmm. in uni and I hated my my freaking DSM thing because every student had like their own tiny one that they just brought with them all the time that they can just look up anything and did you have this in high school where you studied like psychology in hi- like high school psychology mm-hmm. for a few weeks and suddenly like the smartass and the kid starts to do uh, like a psychiatric evaluation of everyone they know?
0: No, but I mean the issues that I have with it is, and I think you you probably agree, is the way they uh, they label like uh, you know dysphoria and like transgender related things.
1: Mm-hmm. Sorry, what what when? Do I don't
0: don't they include trans like uh, being transgender as like a mental uh, disorder?
1: Yeah, they've changed that now. Now now. Well, when do they change it? Oh, I don't know, like two thousand sixteen.
0: Yeah, so that was like late as fuck. I hold a I hold grudges. <laughs> hold a grudge. I hold a grudge.
1: Yeah, gender identity disorder was like standard, I think, from like the eighties, from the DSM three up until the DSM five. Yeah. Yeah, where, I mean, I mean they, they, also into... cons-
0: they also considered homosexuality a disease. I don't forget. <laughs> I don't forget and I don't forget. Don't forgive.
1: <laughs> uh, but in, in May 2013, the DSM-5 was released, updating the classification for pervasive developmental disorders. And the grouping of disorders, including autism, Asperger's syndrome, uh, Rett syndrome, and CDD, had all been removed, but many of these symptoms had been removed and been replaced with the general term of autism spectrum disorders, which is the term we have today. Uh, And there are two categories of this that exist, and they are impaired social communication and or interaction, and restricted and or repetitive behaviors. And so they've they've made it much more general. In recent years, detection methods for autism have improved massively. And the fact that like these detection methods have improved are generally good because it can offer parents uh, like support tools and advice and knowledge that they might need to, you know, to give their child the, the, the support, support that, that they, they need. They need. Mm-hmm. And every kid needs support. There's not a human child on earth that's going to survive on its own. So it's just about equipping parents with the proper tools to to take care for, of their child, because a lot of times, parents will only know how to take care of a very specific type of child, <laughs> uh, and when they try to force children who don't fit into that slice, it doesn't go that well. And most support here is, is good. Uh, detection methods today include uh, checking for speech, learning, uh, like if they can learn speech in a quote-unquote typical way, how they respond to eye contact, and how they respond to like other children and how they enjoy repetitive behaviors. These things can usually give them a sign into how, what kind of support they might need in the future. But diagnosing can also carry with it stigma. There is a huge stigma around autism today, unfortunately, which might itself have negative effects. And this is where I'm going to talk about the things that were mentioned earlier that you brought up. Because oftentimes, the classification as a medical condition, seeing it as a sort of pathologized thing, as a, as a, seeing it as a negative, can cause individuals to lower expectations and ambitions for themselves, which may in turn lower performance on tests and participation in society. And not just like a tiny bit, like a 2 or 3% among children. Like, we're talking like 20% reduced test scores. And this is not just because of like lowered confidence. If you expect yourself to perform worse, you're going to perform worse. This is similar to how like if you tell young girls that girls are bad at math, those girls will perform worse at math. And if you don't tell them that, they perform better at math. And The fact that they can perform lower on tests and perform lower in sociability can themselves be signs of autism, right? So you 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 end up in this sort of like weird Loop where if you tell a child to like expect less of themselves, they're going to perform worse, and then they're going to be labeled as something that is then going to tell them that they're going to perform worse. Like it's it's a it's a weird loop, which is why it's so important that we can't we we can't reduce expectations for kids because that's going to cause them to to perform worse. The severity diagnosed because uh, it's a spectrum, right, is determined by the amount of support they need, like we mentioned earlier, to live a normal life. Uh, but what how do you even define? like what normal is then. Because even though we have better detection methods now, people who might be labeled as autistic today might not historically have been. There's a sort of, there's a sort of skepticism or like myth-making right now that like autism is like on the rise mm-hmm. in society, like on an exponential level. But scientists don't really know if autism is on the rise or if we're just getting really good at detecting it. It's so like if, if we look at like people in the 80s, many people who in the 80s perhaps weren't classified as autistic, might be today or be classified as having other non-neurotypical traits. Even now children who are labeled as autistic from a young age and even sort of like early adulthood might quote unquote grow out of it not by changing their behavior or anything but just because of their life situation being changed and if they if they no longer need support or if they are in a in a different situation they may no longer classify as autistic according to the diagnostic criteria. And it can be something as easy as just like making a few friends. And mm. suddenly you're sociable. And now you don't take the like you're not sociable anymore. And it's 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 such an arbitrary line of like who is autistic and not. So it doesn't really make that a lot of sense. And that's that's the sort of mindset mindscape we have today. Unfortunately, still a very medical view, still a lot of stigma around it, but it is arguably slightly better than historically because we, we can offer support to families who need it.
0: So in the next section of this episode, I wanted to talk a bit about neurodiversity throughout history and especially history before the terms were properly recognized in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. So like we said before, you know, it was a little bit difficult to find a lot of examples in history. And I think that this just has to do with how neurodiverse people were seen in society and how, you know, like if somebody did their work, like nobody really cared um, how they acted in some places. But I did also find examples of of people who were neurodiverse, probably, and who uh, were met with a lot of resistance from their community. Mm. So uh, being met with resistance is one way. But they've also been at points revered through throughout history. At some points, they are viewed neutrally. Uh, so this is what I'm going to talk about. So a very well-known example of potential autism in history is the story of an 18th century Scottish man called Hugh Blair. So Hugh Blair was a son of a middle-class landowning family who lived north of present-day Gatehouse of Fleet.
1: That's the most British name in the world.
0: I know. <laughs> so as autism was not a known concept at the time, Hugh was known as the Daft Lad of Borg. So he is known as not um, taking lot of notice of social conventions. He preferred to eat whenever he felt like it. He didn't really like to eat at the table with the rest of the family. He really enjoyed funerals and he would often travel great distances to attend them. He was also very good at learning from others but he didn't always grasp the reason for why certain things were done. So he learned how to build dry stone dikes by watching workers on his family's estate and then he would build them himself in places where it left nowhere. So he just enjoyed building dikes.
1: uh, To be honest, though, I get that. I love building
0: decks. (laughs) Um, He would also visit people at inappropriate times and then wonder why people weren't more hospitable. Mm. Um, However, he was described as having a gentle and kind temperament and was generally liked. Hmm. and we know about him because um, he was the subject of a court case brought about by his younger brother so he was the oldest son Hugh and he was meant to inherit the family estate however when he married his brother argued that he wasn't fit to marry and therefore inherit and took him to court all the way to the court of session in 1747 the local minister agreed with Hugh's brother and declared the marriage null and void Hugh and his wife actually took no notice of this and refused to separate. <laughs> I love that. I love.
1: Oh my god. I love this. Like
0: <laughs> this
1: asshole brother being like, you, you're not fit to be married. you have not. You can't inherit. And Hugh just like,
0: mm, nah,
1: nah. I mean, I'm gonna stay happily married. Don't yeah. build my dikes.
0: Yeah, he uh, stayed married. They stayed married, and they had a very happy marriage. They even had two children. Uh, so they proved everybody wrong, but unfortunately he didn't get to inherit the estate. Yeah, um, but
1: at least he lived happily. He lived, like,
0: yeah. He lived happily, and he didn't was, have to
1: get you know his wife. You know, he and his wife got they got children. Like they still had an okay life.
0: Yeah. So even, though, even despite his badass brother, right? So there, so there's kind of like multiple things that I want to point out here. That you know he had his um, his. Um, he's, he had his quirks, right? Mm-hmm. He didn't necessarily follow the, the like the social rules at the time, but people seemed to be like pretty okay with him. You know, he was generally well liked. He's being described as like being a, a member of society that people uh, didn't mind. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one aspect of it. But at the same time, like he wasn't allowed to inherit, so he was also denied certain rights that somebody of his like social stature would otherwise be allowed.
1: Yeah. Which which is which is interesting because like there are there are many cases in history too where like we, we you know the, the richer the richer people get the more acceptable people are mm-hmm. like eccentricities like mm-hmm. you know if you look at like God there are so many historical characters that you could look back on who who are like known for being eccentrics and who are, who are well remembered in history um, but if they lived today they they would probably be considered not neurotypical yeah um, and. It just sucked that he would like had got stuck with like his shit ass brother. Mm-hmm. Yes, because I mean, really... guess... like, if that hadn't happened, yeah, yeah, it's quite possible that he would yeah. have just been able to. So, I
0: guess it kind of varies, you know, from, from like case to case. But yeah, so that's, so that's one story that I found, and this is actually quite well known, and it's one of the few s- sort of stories or like pieces of evidence that we have of somebody being, like, probably autistic in history. Um, That's cool. I had no idea about that. Before Hugh Blair, there were a lot of... There were a fair amount of other incidents of what we now suspect to have been autism that are primarily preserved through folklore. So the the story of Hugh was actually preserved, I think, in, like, rulings. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, so it's kind of, like, hard evidence. Yeah, like, it's in writing. Like, court court
1: documents are one of the best preserved documents Mm -hmm. in the world, along with tax records.
0: Right. Um... What I'm gonna talk about now is, uh, you know, it's 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 folklore, mm-hmm. it's fairy tales, so it's uh, it's a little bit like softer evidence, mm-hmm. but I think it's still interesting to talk about. So
1: yeah, I, I just think that like folklore is is often types, uh, it's often like a type of oral history mm-hmm. uh, that a lot of historians right now are are like fighting to respect more. Like if you take away the supernatural elements of it, there are a lot of things you can learn from folklore. Yeah, so I absolutely. just want to say that to the audience, that, like this. This is good. Yeah, absolutely. Uh,
0: I I definitely think that you can learn from this. I just wanted to make the distinction between, you know, written history and oral history. So fairy tales from the British Isles from Germany and Scandinavia all include stories about changelings, which are human-like fairies that were said to be left in place of human children. And according to folklore, these changelings were said to be exact duplicates of the stolen children, except for some characteristic. Usually what, you know, some people would call a disability, which gave them away. And the characteristic could be physical, but were often behavioral and included poor response, resistance to physical affection, inability to express emotions, unexplainable crying, and sometimes inability to speak. And then in some cases, changelings were not children, but were women who were said, according to folklore, were said to be transported to another world and could not return without help.
1: So I'm guessing this is a way for people to sort of explain seeing early signs of autism Mm -hmm,
0: in children. mm -hmm. Yeah. And seeing
1: that they're not acting as As other children. typical children.
0: Exactly. It is believed that the existence of changelings stemmed from the belief that infants, especially unbaptized children, were susceptible to demonic possession. Um, Okay, like this is a little bit maybe... It goes a little bit beyond the autistic explanation. I did kind of want to talk about the folklore a little bit because I think it's interesting. <laughs> uh-huh. But I'm also going to tie it back to the autism um, issue. So they they believed that you know infants and especially unbaptized children were susceptible to demonic possession. But there's also a handful of other explanations in folklore as to why fairies abducted human children. In medieval Scandinavia, it was believed that a human upbringing was preferable, so trolls would switch out human babies with their own babies, hoping to offer their children a superior upbringing. <laughs> yeah,
1: I've uh, as as a Scandinavian child, I've, yeah. I've been told that story.
0: <laughs> I love how even troll parents do their best to offer their kids the best upbringing there is the best it's like you know it's like falsifying school records so your kid gets into ivy leagues it's this except it's you put your switch out a baby for your troll kid just so they could get raised by (laughs) By human parents yeah. Um, in Scotland, it was believed that human children would serve as replacements for fairy children in their tie to hell. According to Scottish myth, a child born with their cowl across their face was a changeling and would soon die. And it's interesting that the cowl comes up again here. I I don't know if you remember, but you, we mentioned it in the witchcraft episode as an element of birth that carried mythical significance. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of fun to see the cowl as like you know it is an element that comes up again when it comes to like myths and stories and and things like Like that. Like,
1: magically powerful.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Other folklore said that human milk was necessary for fairy children to survive. And, you know, there's lots of local variations of the changeling myth, so I'm not going to go into into all of them. But, Mm. um, you know, there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of... um, stories about changelings, you know, this just a lot of variations of this like core idea that human children were replaced by non-human children.
1: Which is kind of a bit dehumanizing. Like literally dehumanizing very rude. Very rude. But I'm I'm thinking like how how are how were these children treated?
0: Yeah, so this is actually what I'm gonna what I'm gonna talk about here. So they thought that they could get the child back but the only way they could do that is um, either by making the changeling laugh or by torturing it, which is a belief that is responsible for numerous cases of child abuse and even infanticide. And there's two 19th century cases which reflect this disbelief in, in historical record. So in 1826, four-year-old Michael Lee was drowned by his mother, in an attempt to cure him. Jesus. So Michael could not speak or stand and was therefore believed by some in his community to be a changeling. His mother claimed she was trying to drive the fairy out of him and the jury acquitted her of murder. Oh my
1: God, (laughs) come on. Yeah. This is
0: 1826? Yeah. That's pretty late. That's not a long time ago. Uh, I know, and listen to this. In 1895 in Ireland, Bridget clearly was murdered by her husband and his cousins on the claim that she had been replaced by a changeling, so in this case her killers were convicted, but not of murder. Um, they were convicted of manslaughter. So they were still like relatively receptive to the story of like, you know, he he like because the husband was basically like, yeah, she was, you know, she was replaced by a changeling, and actually when I murdered her, I actually murdered not my wife but but the changeling. Yeah. So you know, I had not
1: some murder. It's
0: not, it's not, it's that's not that's... murder.
1: It's yeah. <laughs> Do you know how how in like some American states you can you can play the sort of the 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 gay panic defense mm-hmm. in court like mm-hmm. if if a person driven by their homophobic violence kills someone they can get a reduction on their sentence? No. Okay, so this is so there's also something called the trans panic defense where um, where like a person like a man sleeps with a trans woman, realizes she's trans after oh, right, the act, right, right. kills right, right. her, and argues that in court you can get a reduction on your sentence. Being like because yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. the man was so like enraged by this revelation or whatever, and or mm-hmm, sometimes mm-hmm. a man gets so enraged of by course. just seeing or like being attracted to like another man and kills the man, for example. <laughs> like these things happen. They can get a reduction on the sentence. It's called the the gay or trans panic defense. So this is like a
0: changeling like panic,
1: a changeling panic defense, yeah, yeah. which is. I mean, it's it's horrifying because like mm-hmm. these are two instances. I'm guessing there were many more that we just haven't heard about. Yeah, yeah, that's awful.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, like I said, it wasn't so much that I could that I could find, but just according to this, um, to these two, and also like the fact that there's so much folklore about changelings, it really does seem like that was pretty common. You know, if a if a, if a baby if a kid didn't didn't act like they were expected to, there was this immediate like you know jump to conclusion that this is not a human that yeah. it has to be you have to like drive out this force that it's either uh, either replaced your kid or it's it's um you know occupying your kid basically yeah. i so, do like
1: that i do like the one method that is like you can you can help your child by making it laugh yeah but
0: <laughs> but if that doesn't work just beat it to death just
1: beat it oh jesus christ
0: So that was changelings. And now I'm going to talk about um, another metaphor or like trope that is a bit more modern. So it is the alien metaphor. You may have heard of it in the context of like autistic people. So, yeah. So it's, it's, you know, it's a trope that picked up momentum about 20 years ago. And the trope is that autistic people are aliens or symmetrically that non-autistic people are like aliens to those with autism and it's interesting i think the you know the community is a bit like divided on the issue because some some people find it helpful you know they find Mm -hmm. this framing yeah like a helpful way to look at it but this trope has also been abused by some like autism awareness groups so there was this uh, awareness campaign a few years ago and this advocacy organization can cure autism now which (laughs) you can see where (sighs) this is going they used the strobe um, quite um, maleficently mm-hmm. <laughs> or, you know, in a, in a questionable way. So they basically told the audience, imagine that aliens were stealing one in 200 children. That is what is happening in America today. It is called autism.
1: That's horrifying. Right? <laughs> I don't, I, I don't really like don't that. get, like, it's, it's, I really don't get why people, people really hate like children with autism. Yeah. Um, like, like, you yeah. Like people are so stuck in this like mindset mm, of like mm. a child is, is supposed to act one certain exactly, way, and if yeah. they don't, they've they've been adopted by aliens.
0: <laughs> I think. I think maybe. I mean, you know, this is kind of. I'm I'm thinking about this on the spot, but maybe it's just because like some people are just not ready to like put in the work mm. and like treat their children as individuals. Like they're so convinced that having a kid is going to be one way and that you know the kid is going to be almost like an extension of themselves that yeah. when the kid does not act like that or is, is something different than what they expected then they're like they take it so personally and they will do whatever it takes to like you know try to make that kid fit their idea of what the kid is supposed to be yeah um which is horrifying it's horrifying it, I hate it, it, it's it's, it's
1: it, hot take coming in but like if you're not ready for the potential of of having a child being an
0: individual individual, maybe don't be a parent don't be
1: a parent yeah like (laughs) you know having a kid is a huge responsibility if you can't do it yeah and don't do it yeah and
0: like it's it's a it's a fucking person you know it's a whole individual it's a whole person like you have to accept the fact that maybe it will be different than what you think it's going to be yeah Anyway, um,
1: (laughs) (laughs) anyway, Anyway, quick slam on uh, uh,
0: shitty parents. Shitty
1: parents, there.
0: So um, another interesting trope that I wanted to talk about is—it's actually kind of related to the alien one. It's also like almost like a, a mix of the alien and the changeling trope, and it's common in some new age groups. It is the belief that many human abilities lie dormant due to constraints imposed by modern life and that people with autism may be more in touch with some abilities and psychic powers as well as with worlds other than our own. So this new age variant that is, like I said, almost a combination between the changeling and the alien trope is the so-called walk-in spirit. And according to one practitioner in spiritual healing, a spirit is a life force of cosmic energy and the walk-in spirit is one which chooses to rejuvenate an identity which is on the point of ceasing to exist because its current spirit has decided to leave. One category of walk-ins often linked to autism is the indigo children. Maybe you've heard of them?
1: I've heard the name. Yeah,
0: yeah. So it was originally described in 1999, and these children are described as highly evolved and more sensitive than typical humans, whose spirits originate in other worlds. So therefore, the children are like hybrids between humans and extraterrestrials. A successor group of indigo children, called crystal children, are specifically identified with autism spectrum disorders by author Dorian Virtue, Uh, She says, many of the Crystal children have delayed speech patterns, so it's not uncommon for them to wait until they're three or four years to begin speaking. And this is the example that I wanted to bring, um, where children with autism are kind of, like, you know, elevated and almost, like, revered in an interesting way. And I don't... I think it's interesting, because... On one hand, it's it's good that they're sort of accepted for being different and Mm -hmm. their their differences are seen as a good thing. But on the other hand, um, I think maybe there are certain tools that they are denied because their differences are seen as as very valuable, right? So I I don't necessarily agree with the fact that um, autism is so medicalized, but I do think that sometimes one needs to learn... Uh, certain tools to um, to like be able to communicate with people yeah. or be able to like survive in a society, in our society. Mm-hmm. We live in one we... society. <laughs> um, I feel like we should have just like a button that says "We live in our society." <laughs> we should. Um, so I just think that you know, also thinking about autism as like um, as like psychic powers or a psychic ability maybe is is not the best thing either. Yeah. Do you know it's, what I mean?
1: It's better than. Like being directly harmful about it, yeah. obviously, mm-hmm. but there isn't like an othering there. Like there is very yeah, much yeah. like it it, it. it. There are us, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then there are them. Yeah, like, yeah. Whereas like yeah, it's 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 better than harmful. Like I said, but it's 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 still like a, a step away from just accepting that humans are different. Exactly. Like,
0: exactly. And but like, and you can still be a human, and you can still be different, and that doesn't make you.
1: Like, like an, alien. an
0: alien, it doesn't make with you psychic
1: powers yeah. in touch with other worlds. Exactly, like...
0: like it's still it's still a bit of a, of a strange way to look at it.
1: Yeah, um, disrespectful. I feel like, mm, although maybe not. Like, I don't want to say, but know it it's othering. And for, I, for sure, that's probably not for sure. Great.
0: To be honest, I think I'm also not entirely unbiased because I do have. A lot of issues with how New Age groups um, relate to the rest of society in a lot of ways. So, yeah. But that's that's a conversation for another time. Um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Tune into our upcoming episode where we slam the New Age movement.
0: Um, all right. So the last sort of category or the last group that I wanted to talk about are actually the Navajo people. Um, because I wanted to discuss the attitudes of a non-Western group towards Mm -hmm. neurodiverse people Mm -hmm. with the purpose of presenting the concept of social competence and disability in the context of a non-Western culture. Because I think that, you know, there's a very strong connection between culture and our view on disability. And I think that the way that the Navajo people do it is is very interesting and kind of a very interesting um, sort of counter model to like the social disability model. So... To begin with, like very, very importantly, uh, the Navajo do not specifically label developmental or physical conditions as incompetence. So they tend to define individuals according to their unique traits. So if a person has seizures, tends to run away or has temper tantrums, they don't qualify those traits as either positive or negative, rather as what they make that person unique, which is quite different from the Western view.
1: Very different. mm -hmm. Western views are very sort of Collective, in the sense of like you, you fit into collective or you don't. Yeah, yeah. I, mm. It's very interesting how how it's more individual here. Yeah. I don't know anything about Navajo culture, so I'm I'm like.
0: <laughs> You're gonna love it. My
1: my eyes are open, my ears <laughs> are pierced. I'm looking forward to this.
0: Yeah. So um, this attitude is uh, is mirrored in their traditional medical practices. So instead of focusing on relieving the body of symptoms. The goal is to restore harmony of mind, body, and spirit. So they're very holistic about it. Mm. Traditionally, the cause of an ailment has to be determined. um, And typically, this is done by a diagnostician, a crystal gazer, a star gazer, or hand trembler. And then a complex and long rituals involving traditional myths and stories will be performed. So if a person is blind... After the proper ceremony is performed, the person is considered cured even if the blindness remains. Because according to the Navajo, harmony has been restored. Through the ceremony, harmony has been automatically restored. And um, the harmony allows the person to live. But they live with the lack of sight. So it's, you know, it is important to note that this is not the same as the Western ideas of acceptance or resignation. Rather... After the ceremony is performed, the person is automatically considered to be made whole. That is, a whole individual who happens to be blind. Mm. So the Navajo do not attribute the same value judgment to terms such as blindness, paralysis, or seizures. That is a
1: that is very that's very cool
0: mm-hmm.
1: because it, it it kind of opens my my eyes a little bit like we 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 do like in western society we do have a tendency of like conforming everything and I hadn't even thought about it in terms of like blindness like a, yeah like like if you can do a, a sort of practice to make sure that a person can can live mm-hmm. fully authentically as an individual yeah. with everything that that entails like everything that makes up that individual yeah. Yeah. then that's and that—that's it? it. Yeah, <laughs> that's basically. And I think that, I think that's pretty. I think that's that's a lot more not, healthy, they, right? In, like they in don't
0: instance. see they don't see blindness as like taking away from your quality of life necessarily. Mm. I mean, like obviously there's fa- like they cannot see anymore, but they can adapt their life around or like they can change how they live life in a way that allows them to continue living a full life, and they're not seen as disabled. They're mm. just seen as like that is just who they are. Yeah,
1: that's just. How they live love. is this? Um, I I feel like I have that. Is this like traditional? Mm-hmm. The like is this like a long-term practiced cultural thing in, in yeah. the From um, what I know, yeah. Nice, yeah. Because like obviously, I I do want to say that like just to sort of avoid this the the sort of like the quote-unquote noble savage trope. Obviously, Navajo people today, I'm like, uh, i I'm, I'm guessing still at, at, like in and still do this mm-hmm. to some to some respect, but also. Don't like discount. No, and other things like if if a, per, if a person needs glasses, I'm sure that people in Navajo tribes yeah, go yeah. to an obstetrician, for example. Like, I, I, and I just want to have that said that we're not like we're not like fetishizing Native American culture here. We're just talking like of a traditional. Yeah, Cultural exactly, view. exactly, exactly. Uh, no,
0: this is very traditional. And, you know, because like certain biomedical and medical practices are starting to become introduced in the culture, their view on like illness and disability is starting to shift. Um, I'm not going to talk so much about it because it makes it very complicated. Obviously, it's kind of an ongoing process and it's, it's also generational. It depends on where they live. So it's a bit hard to sort of... Talk about it as like one independent cut and... Cut and dry. Cut and dry um, process or like way of doing things. But this is how they do it traditionally, yeah. right?
1: That and that's, I, I that's cool as shit. Yeah, I <laughs> is, what, is what I'm trying to say. I think I, I think it's cool as shit.
0: I know. So okay, so let me let me let me tell you. I also wanted to speak very quickly of child rearing practices in Navajo. So young Navajo children are allowed great freedom in in exploring the world, and there is very little a child can do that is considered wrong or inappropriate behavior. They're allowed access to objects in the adults' world, such as knives, horse bridles, and saddles weaving tools, cameras, and so on. Um, this childhood permissiveness reaches an abrupt end at about the age of six years old when parents start molding the child into an expected model of a Navajo adult. And here's where it gets interesting. Individuals with conditions which significantly impaired their ability to live like a neurotypical adult are allowed an interesting blend between the freedom allowed young children and the responsibility expected from adults, a blend which is uh, tailored to their abilities. So the more able an individual is, the more is expected of them, and then the less able they are, the more latitude they are granted, but they are still considered full members of society. So, in one case, a young man with autism and severe intellectual developmental disorder owned the livestock in the family herd. And although he was unable to care for them, when the wool from his sheep was sold, that was considered his money that supplemented the family's income. And also government security income and tribal funds allotted to disabled individuals were also seen as financial contributions donated by this disabled individual. So they are seen as their own person and like the money that enters the family's funds, um, whether it's from like tribal funds or from the government, that money is seen as being contributed by him. Um, Mm. Not like it's not seen as like a payment to the family for taking care of him. Do you know what I mean? um that's
1: interesting but,
0: yeah it's interesting but so there is a is a big emphasis on like you know these people are granted like membership and citizenship and they're viewed as full members mm-hmm. they're they're not just like a burden to take care of mm-hmm. they're just treated like based on their abilities and of course like i do want to say that like there is certainly like a hope and desire that these individuals would develop like self-sufficiency self-sufficiency skills and eventually their differences are seen as like a prolongation of childhood or the becoming process, as it it is referred to, as opposed to a lack of social competence. Mm. And then, can I tell you some factors which may be contributing to the different perspective of the Navajo to neurodiversity? Um, Well, okay, like, first of all, employment of able-bodied Navajos on the reservation is very limited, which is, it's not, you know, it's not a... It's not a a reason, it's not a factor that that I necessarily am happy with, Mm -hmm. but it is a contributing factor. But so that means that the usefulness of job-related skills for Navajo people is not deemed of overriding importance. And then the concept of work for work's sake is not ingrained as deeply in Navajo culture as it is in Western culture. And then another interesting factor is that silence between people is much more acceptable to Navajos than to Westerners. It is not unusual for Navajos to let long silences punctuate a conversation or to let an interval of silence pass between taking turns in dialogues. Swedish
1: Navajo solidarity. <laughs> Hell yeah. Okay, every time I speak to Americans, mm-hmm. they never, they talk so much. They do. I live in like, yeah, I live in Sweden. These things are, yeah, there's a Swedish language culture as well christ i don't know about that a lot of western I, cultures that i, I talked to like, I, I, I don't
0: know i don't know about that i like, i see where mm. you're coming from and like i know that you're the swede but also i feel like people here will often feel very awkward if there's a pause and they will quickly ask you about the weather maybe like i feel like you have to be comfortable with the person before
1: maybe, you let, maybe that, let that, that you may have a point there but i've just noticed like every time if I, if i talk to strangers in stockholm they like there can be silence but if i if i go to france for example like every time i've been to france or every time i've been to the uk mm-hmm. they're they speak so much like the conversation is never ending i for, don't for understand sure, how sure. they how they can exist like this for sure like in every european country i've been in this like this maybe and maybe it, i just like silence more than yeah. most sweets do but like what i'm saying is here is i i enjoyed this this is yeah, Solidarity. but, like,
0: you're right, because, you know, I also used to live in the United States, and I was kind of a quiet kid when I was a, like, yeah, I was a quiet teenager, and I remember, um, you know, getting rides from, like, my friend's parents and stuff, and, like, I remember sitting in the back seat... And like my friends would talk to each other and stuff, and I would just like see the parent looking at me through the like rearview mm-hmm. mirror because they were like, "Why isn't she talking? Why is she quiet? There's something wrong with them."
1: Let's have a conversation. What are you talking about? Like,
0: what, like they really think there's something wrong with you if you no, don't, if you're not like talking possibly. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Which again goes back to what I mentioned before that like using language as 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 a, like as a measurement for like neurotypicality yeah. doesn't make sense. Like, because different girl, maybe I'm just have,
0: quiet. Maybe I'm quiet. Maybe yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, you know, they back to Navajos. It is, they, so it's not unusual for them to, like, be a bit more uh, measured in, like, what they say. And, like, the, the quality is more important than the quantity uh, for them. And then, you know, answering a question or responding to a comment too quickly, this is interesting. It, to them, that implies that the question or comment was too trivial to require proper thought, which is something I hold true as well. Yes. Uh, some, sometimes you just need a fucking second to think about what you're going to say. Yeah,
1: I, I, I fully <laughs> agree. And again, when I talk to like many other people, and I'll be like, hmm, hmm. you're like, why are you quiet? I'm thinking. I'm <laughs> thinking. I'm taking the time necessary to do this.
0: Yeah. Um, we
1: cut out a lot of the pauses here. We actually record for eight hours these, these episodes because <laughs> we have to think about everything that we do. Uh, most of what we do in this podcast is. We we just sit in quiet and contemplate. (laughs) Yeah. That sentence took three hours to repeat (laughs) All
0: right. Um, Okay. Lastly, there is a reluctance to form conformity on individuals, which is apparent in uh, the Navajo's attitude toward people with ticks or self-abusive behavior, which is you know it's a little iffy, but. it is, it is out there. So rather than attempt to curb the behavior, they tolerate it as a behavior unique to those individuals. Um, and then I just, I found a really good summary of what I've said so far. And it is an excerpt from Citizenship and Culture, The Role of Disabled People in Navajo Society by Connors and uh, Donnellan. So if you're interested in this, uh, check out this paper. So here's uh, the quote. However limited an individual's repertoire might be, any approximation toward ideal and appropriate behavior is accepted as social adeptness. For the most severely disabled individuals, the view of them as children, um becoming, with all the freedom and tolerance allowed a Navajo child, permits a deep tolerance of potentially disruptive behavior, while the respect for individuality and autonomy strengthens this acceptance." And, you know, of course, it can be argued that the reason the Navajo people are able to accommodate all their members is because of their smaller populations and stronger kinship ties. But I do think that Western cultures could benefit from taking inspiration from cultures where membership and citizenship are unquestionable rights. Yeah,
1: like this, this is really, I mean, I know this, obviously, I'm studying history, but like, damn, Western society really loves having a sort of like, there is one archetype of a person. And, be, and be, being part, being allowed to belong, is not seen as a right. Mm. Like,
0: ooh. yeah. And if you need help, get fucked.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, this message was brought to you by the Swedish Medical Board. <laughs> if you need help, <laughs> F.
0: Mm, rip and piece. Rip and piece. <laughs> um, okay. So as I as I described before, just a quick summary. Um, As I described before, the views on neurodiversity have been varied and, you know, it ranged from neutrality and acceptance in Navajo communities to elevation and aggrandization in new age circles to fear leading to rejection in pre-modern Europe. And the different views surrounding neurodiversity obviously led to different attitudes toward neurodiversity, ranging from reverence to abuse and murder. Um, And then, you know, lastly, I... I kind of wanted to revisit a point we made at the beginning of the episode which is that the term disability reflects a mainstream view that people who don't fit the norm are inherently dysfunctional. Mm. Um, and the social model of disability is a way of being, viewing this issue differently. And the model holds that people are disabled by society, not by their impairments or differences. Um, barriers can be physical, like buildings not having accessible toilets or wheelchair accessibility, or they can be social and systemic and can include social exclusion, limited job opportunities, difficulty finding housing, and so on. And I think that the Navajo present a very nice counter model in that they grant unquestioned membership to everyone and accept a person's different way of living as part of who they are. And you know, maybe you, re- you remember the sheep example in which um, the person with a mental impairment is still considered the full person who contributes to the family's finances. Um, but I have another interesting example in the same paper mm. that exemplifies a positive attitude towards differently physically abled people. Um, and you know, I'm gonna read another uh, quote. Mm-hmm. This is not to say that disabilities did not exist in the past, but interviews with elderly Navajo men and women suggest that they were not perceived as problems. After a lengthy discussion of handicaps, or what constitutes a handicap today, one elderly Navajo gentleman finally remembered that he had an uncle like that, i.e. a man who couldn't walk. But because he was able to pull himself onto a horse and let himself down to the ground again and crawl in and out of his hogan, he had never been considered handicapped. He'd ride to a relative's place and they'd feed him. We liked to do that. We liked to share food with him. Um, so so this is interesting to me because this person clearly found a way of movement that was possible for him and he was living a functional life in that way. And, you know, the people around him accepted this different way to move and, you know, just accepted that that's just how he moves. And, and that's, is. that's how he lives his life. And that was perfectly, perfectly fine. And I feel like... In Western society, that would um, that would not work so well because we have a very like narrow view of how we're supposed to use our bodies mm-hmm. or our brains. You know, speaking of autism, um, and you know if you do it differently, then you have to learn how to do it the right way. Yeah. Um,
1: we have a very sort of like uh, solidified view on what society is, in that sense that like you either get with it or get out of the way. Yeah, like, yeah. and that's sort of like the pervasive attitude in, in much of Western society um which sucks <laughs> it's bad folks <laughs> you heard it here i wanted i want to destroy western society it's true that you you caught me but like it's it's bad folks
0: wait what is that uh that song from um from rick and Marty that bill burnham does let me out let me, let me out, out. This, this is, is not, not a d- dance. <laughs> I'm, screaming I'm, I'm, I'm screaming for help. I'm screaming for, for help. help. Let, please let, let me out. Me out. <laughs> I feel, yeah, I just feel like we, we sang that very shittily, but I think it kind of fits here. Mm
1: hmm. For us, we're looking at Western society. Let me out. Girl. So, those are some perspectives on like, neurodiversity outside of Western culture. How we could view mm. neurodiversity mm-hmm. and also uh, sh- you know giving us a bit of a mirror showing us how rigid our own society is, yeah. um, and how how like enforced conformity exists in our society, which is very um, it's very
0: interesting also like I mean I don't I, I'm guessing maybe people would disagree with me, but like you know for a society that prides itself on being like individualistic, it's individualistic in the sense that like you're on your fucking own. But you're also not really allowed to be different, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's it's a different take on sort of individualism. Like, as you say, like, we, we in Western society, we we invent more and more labels to sort of label ourselves to mm-hmm. sort of find our own uniqueness. Whereas we, but we only do that in order so we can sort of attach more and more labels to what the typical norm yeah, is. is. Yeah. Where, whereas other cultures are just like, there is no typical norm. They just abolish that. Mm-hmm. Um And therefore, it doesn't even come up as an issue. Like, Mm -hmm. so much of like just Western discourse and Western society could just be boiled down to like we we don't need this. But with that said, these sort of different perspectives, because we are talking about like how how to be more sort of accepting, Mm -hmm. and how to be more like I I don't I don't like the word inclusive, Mm -hmm. Uh, but how to be more like yeah how to be more accepting of people of like the the diversity of human expression, Uh, which is why I think we should end this episode on a very short discussion like modern day, like autism activism and like mm-hmm. neurodiversity activism. Mm-hmm. So like we've used terms like autism and neurodiversity, occasional disability, right? And yeah, you already talked about like the social model of disability and we should mention, you know, there's there's disagreement even within the community, like what term terminology to use. And there's it, it's not really helped by the fact that there's a huge... Like there's an enormous stigma in society right now about about autism, and uh, like autism advocates are working towards reducing that stigma by using language that is a bit more inclusive. But people disagree about the the correct methods to use. So to say, Uh, things aren't also helped by the fact that there are a lot of like autism organizations that just don't just really help suck. just suck ass yeah. Yeah, yeah. uh that claim to speak for people with autism while not doing that like the organization autism speaks mm-hmm. which their search engine optimization is killer because when when you try to look up like autism information on, online they are like the top eight results mm-hmm. before you find like a good source uh, other organization will try to like actively cure autism by finding the gene for autism like a little little genetics in there a little bit uh, uh, and examples of this are, for example, the organization Autism Speaks. Like I just mentioned, again, they're coming up again. Um, they're
0: really working hard, huh? They're
1: really working hard at being. <laughs> the devil,
0: the devil works hard. Autism Speaks works harder. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, then, of course, there are people who are um, who are a bit more like probably famous in the sense of like they think vaccines cause autism. Mm, yeah. That's a big thing now. Which is bad for like even more reasons, because it sets quite a lot if you think that autism is worse than measles, which will kill you yeah. and kill other children. So a lot of the work today is focused on educating and lobbying to provide support for those people who do need support. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, all anyone needs is just education and like very basic um, like procedural support. And that's all they need to live a normal, quote-unquote, life. And that's something that's fairly easy to provide. It's just that we live in a society that values like CEO bonuses more than healthcare systems. There's also a lot of work uh, that's done to try to reduce like discrimination. Unemployment and poverty is very significant among autistic people. And there's also work to improve autism therapy, which sometimes is good. Like there are there are types of therapy that do help people in in ways that they need help. But sometimes that therapy is also very unethical, trying to suppress yep, the traits yep. of autism and mm-hmm. trying to act normal, which is obviously unethical. And many times parents of autistic children don't have the support they need to find like proper support networks. And sometimes they will be lured into these more harmful networks where they try to cure autism instead of you know supporting their child as an individual with their own individual needs. But progress is happening slowly. The DSM-5 is being updated more and more. Again, I argued before that it could be seen as more progressive than previous iterations. Although you know it's still not perfect, awareness is on the rise, and thanks to the internet, it's easier than ever to like connect online and find support. And apparently, from what I read, the, the age of the internet is like helping very much as well because social interaction can sometimes be hard mm-hmm. uh, with autism. But on the internet, you're not talking to a person; you're talking to a screen, and apparently that helps a lot. Mm-hmm. So that's that's like a an unforeseen bonus of the internet i love the internet i also like not having to deal with people same (laughs) i haven't had a phone call in two years (laughs) and that is our i think i think that's our episode on on like neurodiversity
0: and history
1: history of autism obviously we could make like four episodes about the history of autism and like more cultural things but like we we're trying to keep it like narrow in one episode we've recorded (laughs) this we thought this would be a short episode looks like it's going to be a long one maybe
0: that we'll see We'll see. We'll see how it looks after editing. We'll
1: see how it looks after editing. But I do hope that you've enjoyed this yeah. episode. I've had a great time. I learned stuff about the Navajo.
0: Yeah, I um, I really enjoyed um, I enjoyed talking about the social model of um, of disability. Um, the reason the reason I'm so into it, uh, well, I mean, it, I guess it kind of relates to what I said earlier that I'm like really into Judith Butler now. Mm-hmm. I saw this really really cool conversation that they had with. With somebody with a disability, it's it's on YouTube. I, can I just like plug it super quick because I yeah. think it's really cool. Plug it. I mean, it's not it's not a plug because it's not <laughs> it's not mine. Plug it. But it's um, we're plugging
1: YouTube. Judith Butler, if you're listening, come to the show. <laughs> We'd have you.
0: Um, but it was really cool. It was um, it's it's called Examined Life. Judith Butler and Sonora Taylor. Um, and it's on it's on YouTube. It's like a 15 minute like video. It's just a discussion about like, you know, like disability and what's what's it like like being like having a disability and um you know they they talk about like the social model of disability and you know about sort of needing help and how that's okay I, I don't know I think it's a really great conversation I, I feel like I learned a lot about mm. the top topic by listening to it so I also enjoyed doing this episode <laughs> 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 sorry I'm just obsessed with Judith Buffett yeah I can right tell
1: now. I'm happy for you mm-hmm. we should do an episode on Judith Buffett <laughs> it's not a medical history podcast anymore we, no, we're a we're feminist just... theory podcast.
0: Yeah, just, no. just, you know, it's going to be a medical history podcast, but it has just one Judith Butler episode. <laughs> <laughs> just because we just, really want to do it. Just
1: really want to... Again, Judith, if you're listening, come on the show. We'd have you. Email us. At, <laughs> I don't know if email, but you'll find it. DM us on Twitter. You'll, it'll mm-hmm. be fine. No, but I, I definitely enjoyed it because I also like just reading, like, medical history. Like, yeah. uh, like dry medical history. Mm-hmm. Like, reading about Leo Kanner and stuff. That's, that's a,
0: I think we, this is a good episode. Yeah, you think? I think so too.
1: And if you think so, dear listener.
0: Oh, what a smooth transition! Right, you. you I'm a pro. I've been doing this for years. Slick bastard. Um, <laughs> yeah, if you if you liked listening to this episode, please consider supporting us. It would mean a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a Patreon at Leechfest Podcast and. Um,
1: You'll find the link in the description of the episode.
0: Yes, and if you you know you're interested in more Leechfest content, we are on Twitter at LeechFestPod, and I am the one tweeting. I feel like this is an incriminating thing for me to say. <laughs> <laughs> this but, is playing
1: in a courthouse somewhere. Uh, I am the one tweeting.
0: I it, the tweets are mine. Um,
1: I am the Leechfest podcaster.
0: <laughs> yeah, but you know you can keep up with what we're up to and and stuff consider you know following us supporting us whatever sharing to your friends and uh we hope you enjoyed the episode and we will see you on the next one
1: we'll see you next time